Job 8 is where we find ourselves this morning. For the next little while, we'll be doing our scripture reading in the book of Job for the very reason that, generally speaking, uh, the book of Job, when we, when we approach it, we're going to be approaching it in very large sections, so much so that I can't cover it all uh, in reading in one morning, as I like to do. Now, today we're going to slow down just a little bit, and we're going to slow down because I want us to catch something. We have had uh, an argument, and this is another argument, and we'll be having a continuing arguments in the, in the chapters to come. And with, with each of these arguments, we're going to be finding very similar points, very common points between all of these arguments. And I'm going to try to draw different distinctions between them. And today, the distinction that I want us to, to draw out is one that's a little bit um, more complicated, a little bit more academic, we could say, today. And I'm going to try to draw it out, and I'm going to hope that we understand it. And as we seek to understand it, it's not just going to help us in Job chapter 8. It's not just going to help us in Job as a whole. It's going to help us today in our lives if we can understand how to apply the concepts that we'll be learning about today. You know, of all the math classes, and I, I growing up, uh, well, I didn't like math until math started making sense. But in high school, math started making sense to me. And when math started making sense to me, I, I found out I really enjoyed math. And as I got into college, uh, my, my degrees were criminal justice and computer science. Well, criminal justice does not ask much of you uh, on the mathematics side. However, computer science did. Computer science asked uh, for a, an, a bit of math to be uh, done for the major to be accomplished. And... Of all the classes that I took in college in regard to mathematics, I think the one that I enjoyed the most, probably not my most successful class, but the one that I enjoyed the most was called discrete mathematics. Now, discrete mathematics was a class wherein we were taught not so much new concepts within math as much as it was taking the concepts that we have learned and finding the logical consistency that brings them to pass. Let me explain it this way. There's a mathematical theorem called the Pythagorean Theorem. The Pythagorean Theorem is an equation related to right triangles that states that if you take the length of the x-axis and you square it, and then you take the length of the y-axis and you square it, and you add those two lengths squared together, it's going to give you the length of what they call the hypotenuse, or the length of the diagonal line that, that joins the two right, um, that joins the right angle together. It's called the Pythagorean Theorem. Now in math terms, the equation is a squared plus b squared equals c squared. And you may have heard that before. You say, Pastor, it's been an awful long time since I've done any math. Uh, that doesn't ring a bell. Well, it's, it's still there. Pythagorean Theorem, geometry, this, 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 this is real. And um, so anyway, in discrete math, if you were to step into a discrete mathematics class, you would not be looking at a squared plus b squared equals c squared and try to figure out what c is or what a is or what b is. You're looking at that theorem, the Pythagorean theorem, and you're trying to prove that it works every time. See, in mathematics, a theorem is something that works every time under the specific conditions that are given regardless. You're never going to have a right triangle where a squared plus b squared does not equal c squared because it's a theorem. This is, this is a consistent equation throughout all right triangles. Right triangle being a triangle that has a 90 degree angle if uh, we're not quite there. If there's an exception to the rule, then the rule no longer exists. If there's an exception to the rule, then it can no longer be a theorem. 
Say, Pastor, why are you giving us a math lesson? Well, I enjoy doing this. You know, I'll give you a math lesson from time to time. I'll give you an English lesson from time to time. These are good for us, but, but th- th- there's something more to it. I'm not actually trying to give you a math lesson here. I'm actually trying to give you a logic lesson. Because in reality, logic permeates every aspect of life. And logic is definitely important in theology. Now, we've been learning about theology in our Sunday school, not about it, but about what theology is, and recognizing that it is how God relates to every aspect of life. Well, God relates to our minds. God relates to the functioning of this world. And God is what we would call a logical God. God claims himself in the scriptures to be a God of order. And he claims to have created a universe of order. The nature of the universe is a reflection of the nature of God. So the absolutes of mathematics, as we look at something like the Pythagorean theorem, and we say, wow, there's an absolute here. A squared plus B squared is going to equal C squared under the condition that we have a right triangle. These absolutes in mathematics, these absolutes in logic, reveal to us that life has absolutes. And if there are absolutes in one area of life, then most likely there are absolutes in another area of life or in other areas of life as well. If there are absolutes in mathematics, if there are absolutes in science, if there are absolutes in these areas, well then we can rest assured there are absolutes in areas like morality and like truth. And so the carnal, the worldly, things like math and logic and science are a reflection of the spiritual. This should not be new to us. We see that all the time. I prayed it just this morning in our prayer. We see the snow. We see it's snowing quite nicely this morning, in fact. We can see order. We can see design. We can even see how it reflects the Word of God if we go to Isaiah 55. And so this should not necessarily surprise us. Today we're going to hear an argument of a man. His name is Bildad. We've read it already. And like the argument of Eliphaz, and like the arguments coming of of Zophar, and then as they do the arguments, as they go through another round of arguments, he's got some true words. He's got some things that are right. But he mixes this truth with terrible error. And see, the problem is he's trying to pass this off as absolute truth, when in fact his truth is mixed with error. And while it seems as though these errors are not intentional, and it's not his intention to lead a brother into error, what his errors are are errors of logic, errors of his thinking, the way he's thinking is wrong. While it seems to make sense, they do not hold up against a consistent understanding of God and against a consistent understanding of his word. And so as we explore these incorrect arguments this morning of Bildad and Job 8, we're going to see that these same problems permeate religion today, permeate theology today, permeate the world's arguments in regard to God today, and as Christians, I want us to become aware of this, because I want us to become aware of perhaps areas in our own thought process where we have errors in our thinking, so that we can correct them. So, this morning, two cautions regarding our understanding of religious and theological assertions through the example of Bildad the Shuhite. Our first caution this morning is found in verses 1 through 7. Truth mixed with error is still error. 
You cannot add a little bit of truth to error and get truth just because there's a little bit in there. You cannot take a bunch of truth, throw a little bit of error in there, and then say, I've still got truth. Because where there is error, there is error. Error is not truth. Bildad, the Shuhite, speaks. And as he is speaking in Job 8, he first condemns Job for his words. We're going to find this little back and forth at the beginning of each new argument. Eliphaz began by saying, Job, by the way, you're wrong. And then Job got up and he said, you guys are full of a bunch of hot air. Now Bildad is saying the same thing. Your, your words are like the wind. They're just drifting. They're all over the place. He says, you, like a strong wind, your words have no substance to them. In modern vernacular, he's saying, Job, you're full of hot air. Bildad accuses Job's statements of chapter 6 and 7, which we explored last week. These statements were largely um, reveal, uh, revolving around his claim of innocence. And he says that this is foolish. Job, your words, you've claimed innocence. You're asking God to take your life. Th this is foolishness. And he tries to prove this by asking two questions. The first question he asks is this, verse 3. Doth God pervert judgment? Does God pervert judgment? That word pervert is the word in the Hebrew that means to twist, to bend, to make crooked. Is God's judgment straight or is it crooked? Can God just say, oh, time to uh, change the rules here all of a sudden on you? Yeah, you, you thought I was this way. You thought I meant this when I told you not to do that. You thought I didn't like this and I like this. Well, I'm going to change everything. All of a sudden, my, my, my opinions have changed. What was dark is now light, and what's light, light is now dark. God doesn't do that. And so he asks, does God pervert judgment? And the answer, obviously, no. God's judgments are always straight, always upright, always correct. Then he asks the second question. Still in verse 3. Doth the Almighty pervert justice? So God doesn't pervert judgment. Does he pervert justice? Same word here for pervert. So does God look at the man who has done terrible his entire life and hated God and refused God and everything and he dies in this and God says, okay, you know what, fine, you can, you can come on in. Those, those puppy eyes convinced me and uh, you're, you're okay now. Never mind, I'll just pretend like it didn't happen. And then does he look at the man who has spent his entire life serving God and loving God and doing what's right before God and at the end of his life he stands before God and God says, you know what, I don't like your haircut. So you're out. You're done. You're gone. I just, I just can't, can't stand the haircut. And so you're not going to be in heaven with me. Does God pervert justice? No. God is a just God. God is a God of, of righteous judgments. God is a God of proper justice. God doesn't pervert judgment. God doesn't pervert justice. We can go all over scriptures and find this. So far, so good. Bildad sounds great. Bildad, I'm with you 100% on this. Finally, one of Job's companions. Well, he's only the second companion at this time. One of Job's companions who makes sense. Wonderful. Let's continue. Verse 4. If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgression, if thou wouldst seek unto God betimes, and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wast pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee, and make thy habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. So he says, okay, God doesn't pervert justice. God doesn't pervert judgment. Therefore, your children were slain in their iniquity. And Job, look, you've got a great situation here. He didn't kill you yet. 
That means he must not think that you've done something too bad. So if you'll flee to him, if you'll run to him, if you'll get right with him, then maybe he'll, he'll restore you. He'll make your habitation prosperous once again. What just happened there? Do you see what he just did? God is righteous in judgment. God is righteous in justice. Therefore, your ch children were killed because they were dirty, rotten sinners. Your children were killed because of all of the things they've done against God. That isn't proper logic. He is taking the truths of God and he is imposing his understanding of God outside of those truths upon those truths to come to an invalid conclusion. I'm going to talk logic here for just a moment. This is what we call a logical fallacy. And we're going to talk about two logical fallacies this morning. Logic is extremely helpful for you to know as a Christian. I began the study of logic about four years ago. And it has become one of the most helpful studies with me as I speak to people around the, the, the community. As I speak to people outside of Christian communities. As well as as I seek to reconcile Christian claims upon the scriptures and upon God. See, because we know that God is a logical God. We know that God is a consistent God. And so if we study the way that God has designed the universe and the consistency with which he has designed it, which is reflected in the study of logic, then we can recognize where people go astray in their understanding of God or in their arguments concerning God. And here we have a logical fallacy known as non-sequitur. Non-sequitur. It's faulty assumptions. Now, non-sequitur is a Latin term and it means it does not follow. That's what it means. It does not follow. It occurs when a conclusion does not follow the premise. And it's usually because you are implying something in your reasoning. And that is exactly what Bildad does here. Bildad has assumed, here's what he's assumed. Anything bad that happens to a man happens because he has sinned before God. Anything bad that happens to a man in his life physically is because of a sin that is in his life. And so he says, look, God is just. God is righteous in judgment. God is righteous in judgment. And because sin brings the, the bad things that happen in our lives, because bad things happen because of our sin, God must be doing bad things to you because of your sin, because he is just and he is, and he is righteous in judgment. Based on his faulty assumption, let me read you his logic. God is righteous in judgment. God is righteous in justice. And only judges sinners, not the righteous. That's where he is wrong in his, in his assumption. Therefore, Job's children have been destroyed in judgment and justice. Therefore, God's judgment upon them was just. And Job's children were terrible sinners. His faulty assumption concerning the nature of consequences brought him to a place where even though he recognized the truth of who God is, his faulty assumptions of what 
happens or how things happen, circumstances in our lives being based only upon sin, have brought him to a faulty conclusion. Logical fallacy. So Bildad appeals to Job by saying that since Job was not dead, obviously he has not done as much wrong as his children. Therefore, he still has a chance to repent. He still has a chance to find prosper once again. Too late for his children. Job is too late for them. But don't allow yourself to go down with their sinking ship. Rescue yourself. Save yourself. Get right with God. As we consider this first logical fallacy and this first point, let's apply it to our lives. Once again, I want to bring you back to Job's comforters in relation to Job. How horrifying this experience must have been for Job. We contemplated the scene last week as it unfolded. All of his possessions lost. His children killed. He's sitting with boils all over his body. The, the graphic descriptions of that in Job 7 were pretty, pretty serious. Men who have been Job's friends come to him. And Job having his friends around him for seven days, finally cries out to God and is desiring that his friends would, would commune with him in his affliction. And Eliphaz says, um, Job, now that you've spoken, it's kind of our turn. Let, let, we, we, we can't stop. We can't quiet, st- remain quiet anymore. We've got we've to just say this. Um, it's your fault. Your kids are dead because of you. Everything that you've lost is because of you. This is your sin. This is you. Get it right. Get right with God. In love. Of course. Telling you this in love, Job. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You're sinning before God. Job maintains his innocence. Chapter 6 and 7. He says, no, I I don't have any sin in my life. Point out sin. Do you see sin? Point it out. They say, no, we can't point out any sin. We don't see it. It's got to be there somewhere. He says, point it out. There's no sin. I'm innocent before God. Then Bildad speaks up and he says, Job, I've got to tell you this. Your children are dead because they were dirty, rotten sinners. They were wicked before him. They're dead. Repent. Can you imagine the anguish in Job's heart over this? Have you ever been blatantly and falsely accused? Or maybe your children have been blatantly or falsely accused. I've, I've never had a situation where my children yet, because they're so young, have been blatantly or falsely accused of wrongdoing. But I remember when I was young and I was blatantly falsely accused of wrongdoing, it, it affected my parents greatly. They were not happy with their son being falsely accused of something. It, it, it made them very, very upset. Now imagine you are Job. Your nine children have just been killed. And somebody comes up to you and says, it's their fault, it's your fault. They sinned. They're dead. You've got a chance here. Don't follow in their path. What terrible comforters. We need to be careful with our comfort. I've said it many times. Let me say it again. We need to be careful. When we accuse, when we go to comfort... We need, to, we need to pray to God for wisdom. And we need to make sure that we know the character of our God and what's happening in the situation if we're going to start accusing people. Because if we don't, we might very well be falsely accusing them before God. 
And this happens all the time, by the way, in churches. I did it for years uh, with many various theological differences. I've, I've done it since I've been a pastor here. I have spoken against things with not enough knowledge of the situation. And as I look into things later, I looked back and I said, you know, I wish I wouldn't have said it that harshly. I wish I would have given them a little more of the benefit of the doubt. The one that comes to mind, if you remember my teaching on uh, the text issue. One that comes to mind is Westcott and Hort. We who hold to the King James uh, version very strongly, we have our reasons why we do so. We do not do so in ignorance. But our circles have demonized these two men. If you read their writings, uh, we need to cut them a little bit of slack. I'm not saying that what they did was right. I'm not saying that, that everything that they did was uh, uh, correct. But before we accuse them, we should at least hear what they had to say. And when I went to find out what they had to say so that I could accuse them properly, I found out that I didn't have nearly as much ammunition as I thought I had to accuse them with at all. I was wrong in the degree to which I demonized these men. And we need to be careful when we accuse or when we comfort that we do so in knowledge of the situation and of the word of God. Bildad is not accusing in knowledge. He is accusing under faulty, false logic. Second important lesson. I'm not over-exaggerating when I say that logical fallacies are not just common but prevalent, both in false doctrine as well as in secular arguments. Here we saw the case, as we mentioned, of non-sequitur, where Bildad contends for a false conclusion due to a non-existent link with his premise. False conclusion because he took his knowledge of God and he linked it with false ideas and he came to a faulty conclusion. Now in the secular realm, the place where logical fallacy is most at home is in the arguments that surround atheism. Their contentions for the non-existence of God, their contentions concerning evolutionary worldview, their contentions about truth and morality being relative, they are all completely chock full of logical fallacy. But let's not think that it's just the atheists that have a corner on this market. In the religious realm, logical fallacy is found everywhere around false doctrine. False Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. The false doctrine of baptismal regeneration. They are false connections of, law of truth. They take truths that they read in scripture. And then they place assumption upon those truths and they come to false ideas. Where have we done that in our own theology? Where have we done that in our own lives? Where have we taken the truths of God's word, imposed our opinion upon them, and come with some conclusion, only that conclusion is false? Now, I cannot think of any off the top of my head. If I could, then they wouldn't be my theology. But what we need to be aware of is that this is possible. It's not just possible, but it happens. It will happen. There will be times in our lives where we'll recognize that we have a logical fallacy. We have one of two responses. Number one, we can stand firm in our claim because we don't want to lose face. Because we don't want to be seen as wrong. We can stand firm and defend our logical fallacy to the end. That's how 
false doctrine is perpetuated. Or, we can humble ourselves before God. We can recognize that we had a false line of thinking. We can correct that false line and we can move ahead with purer, more pure doctrine. And so here's my twofold warning. Number one, just because something sounds good, it does not make it true. Truth mixed with error is still error. Warning number two. We need to be careful that we are above board ourselves in this area of logical fallacies. We do ourselves no favors if our arguments for or against something are filled with faulty assumptions and faulty reasoning. We need to make sure that we are above board when in our assumptions and in our reasoning. What does that mean? It means we need to educate ourselves. Learning is not a process that ends at 18 or anywhere near 18. Learning is a lifelong process. And it's important that we learn how to contend for our own faith in a logical and consistent and coherent way. It's important that we have answers for the hope that lies within us. So don't be fooled. Truth mixed with error is still error, no matter how it's packaged. Our second point in verses 8 through 22. Truth is not defined by tradition. Truth is not defined by tradition. There's one more point that Bildad makes here. The first point he said is, this is God's character. God does not pervert justice. God does not pervert judgment. Therefore, your children died in sin. Faulty assumption linked God's true character with his faulty conclusion. Faulty assumption known as non sequitur. As Bildad continues in verse 8, he appeals to what he calls the former age of their fathers to prove his point. He says in verse 9 that they all, even in their old age, are merely children compared with the lives that their fathers lived. Perhaps Bildad is hearkening back to the time before the flood when men would live to nearly a thousand years old. At this time, uh, we're probably talking around 120 years that men would, would live. We're getting to that point in, the, in time around the patriarch Abraham where men live to be about 120 years old or so. So they look at their lives, they look at the fullness of their lives, and they say, we have come nowhere near the kind of time that, that our fathers lived. And so his point says this. These, our fathers said something. And because our fathers were so old, they must be right. He is appealing to their age, and their number to prove his point. His point is founded on the tradition of fathers. He says this, You can't get something out of nothing. Every effect has a cause. Therefore, if an effect is bad, if an effect is evil, then the cause must naturally have been evil as well. Cause and effect. You, you have bad things that are happening. That bad thing must be an effect of a bad thing. Well, that's okay. We can handle that. He proves this statement in verses 11 through 19 with some illustrations. He says, marsh plants can't grow without water. These kind of plants, if they're taken out of their moist environment, they shrivel up, they fail, they die. You can't do it. You can't take marsh plants, plant them in the desert, water them every couple of days, and expect them to grow. It's not going to happen. They need their environment. He says, so too, 
evil cannot result where the environment is not conducive to evil. Now this is quite similar in many ways to Eliphaz's faulty application of the sowing and the reaping principle. He states that those who see evil but claim innocence are nothing more than hypocrites, hiding their evil under the pretense of lies. So let's think of it in a similar illustration to what Bildad is saying here. A plant grows in soil. If I want a plant to grow, I take that seed, or I take that plant, and I put it in a pot around soil, and I water it, and it grows. If, you, if, if I come to my wife and I bring her a bouquet of flowers, those flowers are in water, most likely, or they're, they're nothing, and we put them in water. Is my wife to assume, because she sees those bouquets nicely trimmed with all their ends in water, that those flowers grew in nothing but water? She's not going to assume that. She knows that those flowers grew in dirt, that they grew up and then they were snipped. Bildad is saying, look, Job, do you see the snipped flowers? The, the, the flowers, the result of of your children's life is now they're dead. They have died. They have been judged. They had to have been ripe soil for judgment. That's what Bildad is saying here. The evil that has happened to them is nothing less than the overflowing of the evil that is found in their own sin so much that it could no longer be hidden. They had secret sins in their heart and they finally bubbled over and now they're dead. Now in this explanation, Bildad seeks to justify why it is they can call Job a sinner when he is not manifesting any visible signs of sin in his life. His conclusion is verse 20. That God does not cast away the obedient man, nor does he help the evil man. He concludes that Job, being in evil circumstances, is therefore an evildoer. Not only does Eliphaz's age and experience testify against Job... But the tradition of their fathers testify against them as well. These old guys that lived for so long, they must know what they were talking about. They said this. They were the ones that said that evil comes of evil. We trust them. And so we see our second major point in Bildad's argument. That truth is not defined by tradition. Truth mixed with error is still error. Second, truth is not defined by tradition. We see in this argument a second logical fallacy. I'm going to introduce you to it this morning. It is known as a fallacy of appealing to the majority. The appeal to the majority. And it is this. When a man contends that the truth of, that his assertions are true because the majority of people agree with him. My argument is true because look at how many people agree with me. Your argument is false because look at how few people agree with you. Now, if there's one thing that we can understand from the world around us, it is that the majority is not always right. That is why our founding fathers explicitly made this nation a constitutional republic and not a democracy. They hated the idea of democracy. They were afraid of democracy because democracy, all you need is to get 51% of the people on your side and all of a sudden you're right every time. As long as 51% of the people agree with you, then you're right. But that's not how truth works. Truth doesn't matter if you have 51% of the people on your side. Truth is truth. Truth mixed with error is error. And so Bildad is saying here, look, all of the forefathers are on our side. This is, this is what they all said. And so we're right. 
End of question. We're right because they said so. We're right because look how many people think we're right. Now, if there is one strong appeal that I can make to you concerning religion, concerning doctrine and the things of God, it is that we do not simply rest upon the traditions of our fathers. Why? Because what if your fathers, as in those that came before us, not your father specifically, what if our fathers were wrong? Now, I am not, what am I not saying here? I am not trying to tell you that we should, by default, reject tradition. On the contrary, tradition is a good thing. It is an important thing, and tradition tends to become tradition because it is rooted and grounded in the truth. What else am I not telling you? I'm not even saying that we should, by default, question tradition. So we shouldn't reject tradition. I'm not even telling you that, by default, we should reject tradition. Tradition has been uh, very beneficial. It has many beneficial elements and it forms in us strong moorings that keep us walking close to God, even when those around us are not interested in doing so. But what I am saying is that throughout the course of our lives, our loyalty is not to what we've learned based upon what other people have said. Our loyalty is to how closely what other people have said conforms to this book. Our loyalty should be here. And so, just as I mentioned with logical fallacies, so too it is with Scripture. If we hear a doctrine, and it doesn't have a right conclusion, then we need to find the right conclusion. If we read the Scriptures, and somebody is saying something about Scripture that doesn't match up, we need to be loyal to the Scriptures, not to the tradition of our fathers. See, nobody is perfect. We all have things that are wrong in our theology. Pastor, where are they? I don't know. I haven't found them yet. But I'm going to find them. Or maybe I'll die not having found them all. I'm sure I'll die not having found them all. But there are errors there. But maybe two generations down the road, they'll say, well, Pastor Wickler had some good things to say, but he was wrong here. He was wrong here. They shouldn't just continue listening to Pastor Wickler because Pastor Wickler said it. They should... Be willing to take what Pastor Wickler said that was good. Chew the meat. Spit out the bones as they say. Correct what was wrong. To remain loyal to the word of God. Most religions today function almost exclusively on tradition. The Catholics function almost exclusively on tradition. Many of the Protestant denominations function almost exclusively on tradition. Many fundamental independent Baptist churches function almost exclusively on tradition. This is why it is so important for us to learn some lessons from Bildad's error in Job 8. Truth is not defined by tradition. Rather, tradition is defined by Truth. We make something tradition because it forms to truth. We don't conform truth to try to meet tradition or to try to fit tradition. Now, if Bildad had been in my discrete mathematics class in college, he would not have done very well. See, he, he took things that made sense in their premise. He took generalized truths 
and he used faulty reasoning to extend them to support his faulty assumptions and faulty conclusions. He appealed to the majority to prove his point, even though the reality before his eyes of Job's situation did not conform itself to the majority and their understanding. Not only did Bildad end up in error, but his faulty assumptions ended up damaging the spirit and the emotional well-being of his friend. And in doing so, he wronged his friend severely. Was that Bildad's intent? Well, certainly it was not. But his ignorance and his unwillingness to take the situation and apply God to the situation without his faulty assumptions caused him to be in great error. May I warn us today, number one, truth mixed with error is still error. And number two, that truth is not defined by tradition. Let's pray.